This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. What are we optimizing for? We, we want to get enough car spaces in so that the land uses that sit around them are viable. You're not having a restaurant where everybody wants to go there, but there's not enough spaces. And at the same time, we don't want a store that's not very popular and there's 100 vacant car spaces sitting on the side of the road. So we don't want to over-provide. We don't want to under-provide. That's the voice of Michael Giliuto. He's a traffic engineer at Impact, one of Australia's leading traffic and transport engineering consultancies. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. And I'm Michael Momsen. So, Michael, the reason we are speaking to a traffic engineer is because we wanted to learn all about car parks. What makes great ones, what makes annoying ones. There's lots of annoying ones out there, so we wanted to know why. <laughs> so, there's three cars to every four people in Australia, and it's likely that you're probably already familiar with the poor design choices we often see in car parks. Things like narrow aisles, small spots, Michael, one of yours, lack of signage. Yep. This really piqued our interest because it impacts the customer experience of the venue that you're visiting. Yes. And we think it can be better. So, we invited an expert who designs car parks for a living on the show. And as it turns out, some of the problems with the way car parks are designed are actually designed that way on purpose. (laughs) That was the curveball. We weren't uh, expecting that one. A quick note, I'll be referring to Michael Giliuto as Michael G and Michael Momsen as Michael M throughout the interview. And we started by asking Michael G, why is it that car parks aren't delightful? As an engineer, we get on board at the early stages of a development. So, it'll be a couple of years before it's even built. You think of where car parking is located, it's located you know, typically on the ground floor and uh, and at basement levels, particularly at ground floor, that space is at a premium for retailers and that's the most valuable space if, if we're talking in the context of a shopping centre. We want it to be as efficient as possible. We want to get as many spaces as possible adjacent to the main pedestrian thoroughfares. So we, we come in and, and we're fairly limited with what we can do. Car parking is, is supplementary by nature. So whether it's a dwelling or an apartment building, you know, a skyscraper or a shopping centre. The main reason for it is the contents and, and, and car parking is a bit of a a bit of an aside, you know, necessary, but uh, not the main not the main focus. I have a list of maybe like twenty things that I think most car parks get wrong. Um, let's start with a couple of the, the, the kind of simple ones that I think most people would agree with. Car parks have really tight spaces. Why is that? Wider spaces means less spaces. Just by virtue of, uh, you know, the the constraints that we have. Turning circles in car parks. Like, I can't turn a corner without having to cut that corner. And then I'm in the way of somebody else coming the other direction. All kinds of problems. Like, so, again, is is that just by virtue of trying to maximise space? Yes and no. So, one, one interesting thing when we're designing for safety in car parks, which is typically... Paramount. I mean, it's good to get as many car parks in there as you can, but at the end of the day, we want a safe environment for users. The reduction in width of, of car parking aisles and main driveways, it encourages slower driving by drivers by virtue of the fact that there's not much space. Really? Yep. That, so, it, it's actually a part of the design. So, <laughs> wait, wait. Yes. Let, me just, let me just get this straight. You design, as an engineer, you're designing car parks to be... Difficult to navigate 
intentionally so that people drive slower and it's a safer um, a safer environment for other cars and also for pedestrians. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's it's quite counterintuitive, isn't it? But uh, yeah, just just think about yourself. Uh, you're driving down a, a local road and one that's um, really wide. You you know you're encouraged to start to start going. You know, six, sort of that, in that sixty kilometer per hour range. Whereas if it's quite constrained, you've got car parking on both sides. Uh, yeah, you, you you will find yourself driving slower just by the environment. I don't know what Adam's list of twenty things are, but. Near top of mind would be the signage, actually. Like, the amount of times, the way it points to exit, multiple issues with signage, I think. Does that factor in at the early design process? Or does someone slap that on afterwards and maybe they're not as intimate into how traffic should flow? And do people actually go through that experience themselves when they're designing the signs? Because I almost feel like I often think, has anyone actually sat here like at this point after coming down these two stories and then tried to figure out how to leave? Like it's it's often very, very difficult. Uh, Traffic engineers will get in early and we'll design the spatials and make sure everything works functionally. What will happen in terms of signage, that's quite often an after-the-fact item. In the industry, we call it signage and line marking. So it's 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 a single package used to encourage efficient circulation, make sure drivers aren't overlapping. We've found in the industry, when we've gone to look at some sites that have been built quite some time after we've looked at them, that the actual contractor who's been engaged, uh, perhaps they're paid per arrow that, that gets installed on the road or per sign. Um, <laughs> oh, and and wow. there's a proliferation... <laughs> of signage, uh, which actually, as you pointed out, does more harm than good. So, our our approach is less is more for signage. But that, look, that happens. That happens. This is blowing my mind. Uh, another frustration point for me is uh, the fact that pedestrian access in car parks is a big problem. There's no kind of walkways. You have to either walk on the road or walk between cars, which, as we've discussed, the spots are very small because you're trying to maximise the amount of cars. As a car park user, just the whole process is really frustrating um, and it's not a good experience. As a pedestrian, once I park my car, still part of my customer journey is to park my car and then walk into the shopping centre. Why have we not thought about pedestrians in car parks? Well, you raise a good point. At the end of the day, regardless of how you arrive somewhere, you will be a pedestrian for some portion of that trip. So, in our hierarchy of road users, pedestrians are always at the top. Now, in terms of specifically designing for convenient pedestrian access points through a car park, quite often that's dictated by by the land use. So, in larger shopping centres, you will typically find some allowance for that. In smaller developments, it comes back to the constrained aisle widths and whatnot that the car parking access aisle is doubled up to provide vehicle and pedestrian connectivity. So... If you start to get really large stretches of car parking aisle, say 200 metres long, vehicles will start to pick up a decent speed along that. And then that's when you start to advise your client, perhaps say, look, in this instance, let's go for a pedestrian cut through um, through the car spaces and, and give some more space over. Whereas if you've got a shorter access aisle, uh, I think you can reasonably rely on it as a shared space. And and, and again, we're, we're talking about um, optimising space where we can, so... What are you optimizing for when you're designing a car park? So, what, what are we optimizing for? We, we, we want to get enough car spaces in so that the land uses that sit around them are viable. You're not having a restaurant where everybody wants to go there, but there's not enough spaces for them. And at the same time, we don't want a store that's not very popular and there's 100 
vacant car spaces sitting on the side of the road just being a big eyesore. So, you know, it's a case-by-case basis and we optimise to make sure that the land uses that are nearby can run as efficiently as possible um, in the same breath, also encouraging sustainable transport modes. So we don't want to over-provide, we don't want to under-provide. What is a great car park, actually? Like, is there, Are there any that come to mind, whether it be one in Melbourne or Sydney? Actually, I don't think there are any good ones in Sydney. Um, you know, are there ones in a, in a capital city or a country um, that you've seen? Do you know what? That is a, a great example of well-thought-through and executed des- car park design end-to-end. It depends how you define great. Can I say, though, as a, as a general response to that question, it comes from a client directive. So on our end, you know, the client will be certain uh, certain retail chains, for example, um, and, and, and that, is, that is definitely the case. We typically default our designs to an Australian standard dimensioning. However, th- these retail chains actually have their own specs, so they want a certain level of comfort for their users. You know, certain ones are expecting lots of parents opening all four car doors that they need enough width between the cars to facilitate people getting in and out. Also, you know, y- your home hardware type, there's allowance for, for, for wider cars, your, your SUVs, and, you know, they also have bays for cars and trailers. So you typically find that it's, it's it, again, it's driven by the land use. So y- your shops that are selling big goods typically um, have, some, have some really comfortable car parks for the users. Sure. And maybe let me give you a few thoughts and examples of where I think that we have seen some, albeit very small, innovation in car park um, that has been more customer-centric. I think in Sydney, I think the first time I saw it was in Chatswood, actually, where they rolled out the um, the light sensors, red-green, I think it was Westfield, Chatswood, actually. A lot of car parks now have that system. Super handy. You go, okay, cool, there's 37 free spots if I go up the next two, or I'm going to be battling it out you know, here because there's only one spot left. So that would be one. The other one that I've seen is more family car bays, you know, for prams. I know certainly when we had our first child, it's like, oh, it's such a such a pain having to park, you know, ages away and then get the whole pram and stuff out. Who led those um, design decisions? Because obviously that came from somewhere to go, do you know what, we need to deliver a better uh, driver experience, customer experience. Did that come from the landlord, from the developer, from um, the original car park engineer? And what other things like that could we potentially expect? Well, you know, initiatives like that, if you like to call them, come from all of the above. And they're either implemented in the design phase, so before things are built, but I think quite often you'd find that these these tweaks to car parks that um, accommodate for individual users are actually implemented after the fact. So people will get in, they'll see how the car park's working and, and reconfigure the, the, the premium spaces that are, that are closer to your main access points um, for these users. Sometimes that comes in in the planning stage, but uh, quite often there's a bit of scope to uh, to modify it to to accommodate the users. Yeah, what I'm hearing really, Michael G, is that it's actually not the engineer's job to design a car park that's great for drivers. Uh, it's the engineer's job to design a car park that is that meets the specifications and objectives that their client has given them, and so great car parks are maybe not possible because the owner of the land is not thinking that they need to be great. There's definitely some truth to that. They typically drive the development. So we definitely have the scope to design, uh, you know, a really functional car park for drivers. Um, But, you know, as I pointed out before, there's a very fine line between something that's easy to drive around and then something where the, the, the speeds start to pick up a little bit and pedestrians start to feel unsafe 
It really is a fine line. And, and as we pointed out before, every driver will then in turn become a pedestrian. Welcome to the Quickfire Round, where the rules are simple. You get 10 seconds to answer each question, and if you take too long, we'll bring out the buzzer. First question. What skill are you terrible at? Imagination. There's not much there, uh, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Which uh, probably makes me me well suited to engineering. And what's your guilty pleasure? Three o'clock snacks at the office. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, I've literally been trained like Pavlov's dog. Three o'clock comes around and uh, if I don't get a sugar hit, uh, I'm done. Well, so, yeah. What's the hit of choice? Uh, look, it's typically uh, any all the lollies. So, all the soft stuff, <laughs> tubes and whatnot. Uh, yeah, snakes, <laughs> you name it. Uh, love it. What's the best advice you've ever received? If it's meant to happen, it will happen. You know, take the shackles off and, and give it your best shot. Great. What brand do you look up to? It has to be JV Hi-Fi. Every mm. time I go in there, I know I'm getting a good price straight up. It's very consistent from store to store. Every time I've been there, I've had a good experience and uh, I feel pretty good spending my money there because they're doing a good job. So, Did you know with JB Hi-Fi, you can haggle with them? I've done a bit of haggling. I, I normally keep it for items that are above $500. Otherwise, I think Ooh. it you know, can be a bit petty. Uh, I bought a Logitech product that had a price of 79 that was unspecial and I think I got him down to $73. You drive a hard bargain, Michael. (laughs) That's very impressive. So, I did a bunch of research for this chat, Michael G, and uh, I read read, um, an article in the Journal of Mathematics Today um, by an academic named Percy who talks about how to increase the efficiency of car parking. I want to quote from the article. Uh, It says, For a car park with a 45-degree angle bay, uh, that leads to an efficiency saving of 23% in terms of the um, optimization of the land space. So, the question to you, Michael G, is why is every car park not using 45-degree angle bays? First of all, that's very impressive. (laughs) Uh, I like it. 45-degree angle bays have their limitations. So, one of them is, you know, I'm an engineer. So, normally I've got pretty plans and uh, all my calculations uh, to prove my point, but I'll give a go with words here. You're accessing it from a one-way aisle. So, the spaces feather out in a certain direction. You access it one way, you're in forwards, you reverse out and proceed in the same direction. The difficulty with that is uh, most places where we're trying to maximize space, so where something like an alternate parking uh, configuration such as you proposed uh, would come into play, um, it's quite quickly shot down uh, from from the user's perspective. So large spaces, uh, car parks that are used for, we, we define them as short-term users. So your people that are in and out within an hour, they may not visit the center frequently, and we've touched on signage and line marking before, uh, it can be quite difficult to enforce a one-way operation in the car park. So, yeah, the short answer is with the 90-degree spaces, although they can be less efficient uh, depending on the certain modules, different countries have different parking modules. Uh, The idea is, coming back to customer experience, where you can design it, everybody should be able to turn down every aisle. And that actually reduces the instances of people going down a one-way section, making a mistake, reversing back 20 meters, 
you know, there are there are people with prams, there are pedestrians walking around. We try and avoid that wherever we can. And and as I touched on before, even though we are trying to optimize as engineers these spaces, uh, safety is always our our number one priority. Right. So you're all, <laughs> you're almost like engineering against people being idiots. Yeah. Look, uh, you know, th- th- there's a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> What are some of the unintended consequences of designing a really amazing car park? Our transport options are, are part of our life. If you guys have ever tried to commute during the peak hours, you you know you're you're, you're frustrated, and uh, I've done my share of that. And and I'm, I'm you know you wake up you you rock up at work and and you're frustrated. You've worked you know you've worked yourself up. Jeez, uh, oh, I just don't think it benefits uh, it benefits any anybody uh, providing a. a just a, a a driver and a car um, dominated environment. So can I can I interject then? Um, if we design car parks to be better, and there's a a range of reasons or a range of ideas that we had on on in this discussion so far. But if we implement all these and make bigger car parks with bigger spots and they're easier to navigate and it's got the license plate recognition and all the amazing things that make our lives easy, what's the impact of that? Uh, life example, I guess. Uh, you've got a development and I live 500 metres down the road and if there are 10 car spaces there, I know they're always full. So, I'll go for a walk. Uh, however, you provide 30 spaces, I know I'm always going to get one and uh, I may be inclined to to drive. So, you know, that's a that's a fairly simple example. Obviously, we live in a pretty complicated uh, society and uh, and city for that matter. When we make things better for drivers, it creates an incentive for people to drive more. Right, and kind of counterintuitively, that actually starts to create more problems down the line because when there's more cars on the road, then obviously your supply-demand equilibrium is now out of whack. And um, the example you used before, you make more spots, then more people drive, and so then, you know, we're we're kind of here postulating on this podcast, saying, "Oh, we'll just make more spots or make the spots bigger or whatever," and it's like that'll solve the problem. But what will actually happen when you make more spots is just more people will drive and use them. And then you just have no spots left again. And the spots are still crappy. How do we overcome that inevitable thing of the better we make it, the worse it gets? You've hit the nail on the head there. Um, that's part of what we're thinking about. And, you know, the, the tried and tested approach to that is a, is a multimodal approach. You want to think about your pedestrians. You want to think about your cyclists, your public transport. As well as your drivers, we, we we want the drivers to have a good experience, so we want things to be safe. But if you're only if you're only accommodating for one user, then all the users will be that user, and as and as you said, that that doesn't work. So so we we need to give people options. Uh, certain people will be happy to take up different options, and and that's the strategy, and and that's what you see with um, some really fascinating cities around the world that uh, move a tremendous amounts of people and. Surprisingly, not too many car parks around. Has there been a development that you've worked on where the client had a particular objective in mind and you and your team have convinced them that a different approach may actually be better? Michael asked me a question before and he said, what do you think defines a great car park? I'll answer that uh, again. And sometimes it's no car parking. So... (laughs) So I've been involved in residential like development. Car park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you like that, Adam? Well, Take that. Well, if you don't have a car park, you can't get anything wrong. So maybe that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so this is actually a trend on the increase in Melbourne. So, uh, inner city areas, 
you know, that are serviced by a tram line at your front door, a train station at your back door, uh, is actually a trend to providing no car parking. As much as it might seem that, uh, you know, they've got one, uh, an idea in mind um, to save a dollar, at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the market dictates itself. And uh, we've also, so sometimes people come to us and say, we're not providing any car parking on site and, and we are happy to support it on that basis. I should mention it's not just inner city car parks. Um, the new Perth Stadium, which has actually just been completed, I think it's a big 60,000, you know, mega stadium. And they built that with no car parking at all, actually. Yep. And I imagine that uh, that's well serviced by by train, by heavy rail in particular. Yeah, I think they built like a $100 million train station on its own. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, it comes down to the fact, I mean, just picture it. You've got a stadium, you've got a, a really nice circular hard stand around it where everybody comes together. There's, um, you know, free pedestrian flow. And if you had a car park sort of, you know, underneath the stadium or to one side, uh, all of a sudden that, that, that flow is interrupted. So It breaks it up, exactly. And actually part of the plan is to sort of have people not only go to the train station, but to kind of have people spill out and walk out along the, the river and sort of have cafes and restaurants and a, you know, walk bridge across the river, you know, sort of spill out and walk into the city and sort of explore um, the local area. That, that's a good example, actually, of not only making maximum great use of the space, but actually probably delivering a better experience, actually. Yep. And yeah, and we call that a, a multi-purpose trip. Sites like that are ideal uh, to provide no car parking. So one where you've got good access to transport, but second to that where you, you can actually stay in the area a bit more and it, it encourages and uh, provides some vitality to these to these centres where people can have a good time and, and you know, they, they don't need to just have a mad rush back to their car and get home as soon as possible, you know. There's lots of knock-on benefits to well-thought-out uh, transport planning. So what we've learned is uh, having no car parking is the best designed car parking and use that space for bars and cafes. Uh, <laughs> and then that extra revenue, you could give people an Uber discount to catch an Uber there or jump on your bike and uh, have a free coffee if you uh, yeah, park look, your bike. I'd hate to talk myself out of a job, but uh, Michael, look, you're not wrong there, mate. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I've got one parting idea to leave with you. Next time... If you ever run a focus group, you should absolutely invite Adam Jaffrey and his 20 list of um, hates <laughs> around car parks. I think that would be a wonderful yep. focus group. 20 is pretty harsh. I feel like I've come off uh, like a bit of a um, grumpy old man in this episode. It's <laughs> fine. You're allowed to. Michael G, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it was great fun. Thanks. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Great. So, as we go into the debrief, I actually just want to start by saying we purposefully did this episode for selfish reasons. So, we're not too sure how many takeaways <laughs> we'll have. And those selfish reasons are both Adam and I have always bitched about how much we hate the customer experience in car parks. Yep. We thought, well, why don't we find out why they're so bad? <laughs> and so, Adam tracked down Michael, hence this episode. <laughs> the first thing that really hit me between the eyes was the way that the sign making at the end was this like afterthought slap on uh, almost like a sticker at the end and mm. it wasn't really critical part of the design and it's more than just signs like these signs are explaining to the user uh, where to go how to think about you know the best way to park exit etc it's really a core part of the customer experience and it really hasn't been thought about it just gets thrown on at the end and so I think the key takeaway for me there is really having all these stakeholders come together at the start would make such a big difference in this yeah, totally. And it's funny you say that because um, one thing I really took away was you need to be careful of the incentives that you give people. Um, right. You know, Michael, 
So, so Michael talked are you, are about. Are going to talk about the sign vanilla? He, he talked about paying people per sign or per line oh, that they put so on the, you know, and it's like we laughed about that now and during the interview. But um, it, it's when you really think about it, it's so obvious. You give people um, that kind of incentive, and it right. drives a particular behaviour. And so if we think about you know our staff or our. Um, even our customers, you know, giving discounts for certain things at particular times of the year or if they know that something's going to happen that's coming up, right. they won't buy now until later. So, be really careful about the incentives that you give staff or customers because it makes a big difference. It's so straightforward, but it is worth um, you know, doing a bit, <laughs> a bit of an incentive review to make sure that uh, it is aligned. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe that one. The second thing that stood out for me was... Thinking out of the box is a great way to come up with wonderful customer experience ideas. The fact that we had no car park is actually a best car park. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Who would have thought that would be a key part of the design? Um, I could just imagine that in a workshop, by the way. Like, we've got to come up with a great car park. And then someone says, oh, let's just have no car park. All right, done deal. (laughs) You know, let's go to the pub. But, you know, that really is around thinking about the end in mind, what is going to have the best outcome. And, you know, a a practical way of thinking about that is like, okay, we're having problems with our queue, you know, our line in our um, store as an example. Well, rather than just thinking about how to optimize that queue, you know, what if you had no line? You know, like Apple Apple Store, there is no line. Um, And so I think there's wonderful ways that you can actually give yourself permission to think out of the box, which I thought was quite nice. The other one that I had was, um, you know, if we think about, all user types throughout the journey you know, in a car park, right? You know, Michael spoke about motorists becoming pedestrians at some point in their journey. And so, they need to also design for pedestrians. Mm. That actually kind of created a whole bunch of interesting issues, like all of those design choices that were made to account for safety of pedestrians were actually hindering um, the ability to park and manoeuvre as a motorist. And so, we didn't know that before we came into this interview, but I thought it was really interesting that you need to think about all roles that a user may have throughout their customer journey because the decisions that you make for one may impact the other. So, in summary, our takeaways were... Ensuring that all the right stakeholders are there from the very start. Be careful about the incentives that you give staff or customers. Give yourself permission to think outside of the box. And finally, think about all roles that a user may have throughout their customer journey. Well, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you have any feedback, any thoughts, any guest suggestions, please send us an email. We love to hear from our loyal fans. You can email me on adam at wavelength.audio. And I'm Michael at rateitapp.com. Awesome. See you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is a co-production of Rate It, the market leader in on-the-spot customer feedback, and Wavelength, podcasting strategy, production, and amplification for brands. This episode was produced by Nick Jones, Christopher Lawson, and me, Adam Jaffrey, and it was edited and mixed by Josh Armour. Our theme music is by Icolix, Peter Cooley, and The Shrugs. If you liked this episode please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your shows. And tell a friend. Word of mouth is still the number one way people discover great new podcasts. And finally, if you're obsessed with customer experience like we are, but you're not getting a high enough volume of customer feedback across your business, then it's worth having a chat to the team at Rated. You can find out more information or book a time to speak to them at the website, rateitapp.com. That's 
R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. I'm Adam Jaffrey. Thanks for listening. We produce this show every fortnight, so we'll speak to you in two weeks.